Hello and welcome to episode two of our Edelman Editions Leaders in Action podcast. I'm Rachel Healy-Harris, Senior Director and Head of Trust Communications Coaching at Edelman, and I'll be your host for today. With over 20 years of experience understanding the drivers of trust through Edelman's globally renowned Trust Barometer, this podcast series talks to leaders of some of the world's biggest businesses and brands to understand how they drive trust through action, examining how organizations need to be additive to the world around them and help engage on some of society's biggest issues. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rupert Gowley, Group Corporate Affairs Director at Bupa. Rupert has spent eight years there across a number of government affairs, strategy and external communications roles. Prior to joining the healthcare giant, he was the joint head of MHP's health practice and a director of government relations at the law firm DLA Piper. Rupert, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Rachel, and um, thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to be here with you. Fantastic, no problem at all. So let's start off by talking about you. I gave a brief introduction there, um, but can you tell us a little bit uh, more about how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, um, as yes, you said, I've been at Bupa about eight, actually coming up towards nine years, um, across a range of roles. But um, going back, I actually, you know, I, I actually became a lawyer first of all, um, which was a brief and relatively miserable um, uh, career. But um, I then I'd worked a little bit around politics, political research, and on some campaigns, and I realised after that that what interested me was engagement communications advocacy how to how to win an argument how to convince how to influence so i went into sort of political affairs government affairs as you said and but through that that opened my i guess my career into corporate communications and you know as you know that can lead you in many different directions and i've had a a lot of great experiences i've been incredibly lucky where interesting opportunities projects clients uh colleagues have just been there throughout my career where i've been able to move through sort of government affairs public affairs as some people call it into reputation and crisis and issues into things like sustainability and esg corporate affairs in its entirety proactive external communications digital social um internal um and then i did a a piece in the strategy function in Bupa as well, a piece of work uh, there, there for a year and some M&A. So I've just been really lucky. And hard work and talent, I'm sure. But um, why, why health? I started doing health probably about 13 or 14 years ago when I was more a generalist. And that was a lot around things like pharmaceuticals and um reputationally sensitive issues around things like clinical trials, pricing, um, how to engage appropriately with your stakeholders, um, a lot of interesting ethics issues. And I think for me, healthcare had just this fascinating blend of, you know, the political, because in many countries, it's a very politicised issue and publicly funded in part, obviously the commercial and business, that, that's always been an interest. I, I enjoy business. I like um working with and in businesses to see how um they that they, they they meet the needs of their customers you also got very very human it is obvious that it's a very human area um you've got science and innovation in there and it's just fascinating and it's constantly evolving through the science and through also society so it's just had a fascinating blend i think even within the healthcare 
you can go in many different directions and paths. And I used to do quite a lot of work with pharmaceuticals. That's not Bupa. We're not in that end of things, but you know, we're into all sorts of other parts of healthcare. So it's the breadth and the pace of change, innovation, and I think the fact that it is so intrinsically important to everybody. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, maybe that's a perfect segue, actually, to asking you just a little bit more about Bupa. Um, clearly a well-known name, but you probably do more than than people realise. You talked about breadth there. So what would surprise people about Bupa, do you think? You're absolutely right. Um, I often have to re-explain Bupa to, to people who, I mean, maybe, as you say, particularly in the UK, know the Bupa brand. It's a very well-known brand. We've been around for 75 years. And so people see Bupa and know Bupa in different ways. I think it's the breadth, the breadth and complexity of the organisation. We're a very big global company. Um, our roots are British, our heritage are British, but you know our biggest single business is Australia. We have very, very large businesses in Spain and Poland and Turkey and Chile and Brazil. Um, I'm going to miss, there are many, there are many. There are, you know, there are businesses across Asia and the Middle East. So I think that breadth is often a surprise in terms of how large the organisation, how complex, but also the breadth in terms of services. Many people know us for one thing. So they'll, they may have come across us you know, as a health insurer, which is our largest single business in the UK. However, they might know us uh, because we used to have many hostels. We have fewer hostels than we do than we did in the UK, but we have many clinics. We then went into dental services, which is very much more of a high street presence that we didn't used to have. We went into dental in a big way about, about five years ago in the UK and worldwide. We also have, in some places, care homes, retirement villages. Yeah, so huge breadth, uh, Rupert. That I think people people wouldn't wouldn't know, which is which is really interesting. Um, so let's let's get to it. Let's turn to trust. And uh, the latest cut of our trust data shows that business leaders have a real opportunity to restore trust. And in fact, it showed that forty nine percent of people trust businesses to do what is right versus 42% for government and only 35% for media. So I'd love to know, what, what do you think the opportunities are for business to take more of a leadership role in 2023 and beyond? Thank you, Rachel. And I think this stuff is really, really interesting. And it makes my job and people people who have jobs like mine really, really fascinating in, in companies because it's a very real live conversation. There are opportunities for organisations and businesses like ours where it is authentic, but also where it's tangible and real. So what I mean by that is that if a company or an organization is going to take a position and advocate or articulate that position, then it has to be backed up by tangible um, action uh, and results, ideally. So what I mean by that is, you know, it's good to be bold and we want, you know, I take it, so I take people who want to be bold in some of our positions and our statements and demonstrate that we're making a real difference because those things align with our purpose, our values. They go to the essence of who we are as an organisation. Um, the key thing for us, and we're very conscious of, is that we back that by action. So if I give you a couple of examples. So one that's very, um, well, fresh in our mind, but it's, it continues, is um, Ukraine and um, the, the war in Ukraine. Um, we don't have a business in Ukraine or indeed in Russia, um, but we took a position um, about not doing businesses with 
Russian entities uh, very quickly. That was very aligned. We do have some clients who are uh, in Russia. Um, so we stopped that. But that was, a, I think that was a thing that felt right. Uh, many organizations did it. But more importantly for us, we looked for a tangible way of making a positive difference in a terrible situation. So we have a very, very large healthcare business in Poland, where, as we all know, well over a million, I can't remember the latest figures, but where one million, two million Ukrainian refugees fled the war and went to Poland. We realized very quickly, in fact, within 24 hours, our Polish business set up uh, emergency clinics with uh, refugee centers in Warsaw and elsewhere in the country. We had ambulances going to the border, bringing, taking services to uh, and support to the Ukrainian border. We uh, set up mental health lines. We opened up our hospitals and our clinics to Ukrainians for healthcare support. So, and that's carried on. We've expanded it and it's carried on and it remains a continuous com commitment and will carry on as long as it is needed. And so to give you some numbers there, uh, the team in Poland told me most recently that I think we covered or provided healthcare services to at least about 170, maybe up to 200,000 individual Ukrainian refugees. Some of that's on a continuous basis, some of that's a one-off. Um, but actually, really importantly, we also found a way to um, recruit and employ Ukrainian healthcare workers, because many of the refugees included people who are trained doctors, nurses, other practitioners, um, and we managed to fast track them into the Polish healthcare system, give them work, which I think is incredibly important about dignity. Um, and we've recruited, again, last numbers I had, a few hundred uh, uh, Ukrainian healthcare workers within that business. And that carries on. And that's a, a commitment that we just fund. We, we you know, continuously fund and that will carry on. And I think, so that's, a, that's where I think an, an example of an organization that has, I use the word standing, you know, we have a relevance and in, in the issue and we can make a tangible difference. Um, and I think where organizations might get it wrong is if you're making pronouncements, you're talking about certain issues, but you can't link that to demonstrable action. And I think that's where you, know, it beca you can become unstuck. Hmm. And I presume that was those decisions and, and those initiatives were uh, received well by employees. People are really happy that you're doing that. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. Um, it's something we are tremendously proud of. Um, uh, Anya, who runs the business in Poland, has done a number of, sort of talks and posts in, um, on our internal channels. Uh, it's something we're, we're very, very proud of. And it, it really, things like that really, really create and build internal pride. Uh, people are genuinely proud, uh, to use the word again, about things like that. And that's just one really good example, but it's, but it's relevant and, and real. Um, so, yeah, we don't do it for that, <laughs> of course, don't do it for that reason, but it does build a lot of trust internally. Clearly, there's an element of you know, how it builds trust externally um, with, with, uh, with, with different stakeholders, but we don't do it for that reason. It's right, it, it's right, it's real, and it's deeply connected to what we are as a company. We're a healthcare company. Um, it's our purpose. We, we do know, though, um, so one of the findings from our trust barometer was that 54% um, of people choose a place of work based on its value. So, you know, that kind of initiative 
inevitably is is going to be a, a draw for people to to come and work at, at Bupa and as you say something to be to be proud of. Can you share a little bit about Bupa's values and how you're investing to support employees at the yeah. moment? Well that's again really relevant um because of a lot of work that we're doing internally. So if I if I actually could take it up a level, um we talk a lot about purpose at Bupa and I know that is something that many organizers talk about I've been Bupa nearly, we're coming up to nine years. Purpose is something we've always talked about. So our purpose is helping people live longer, healthier, happier lives and making a better world, um, which, you know, very ambitious statements, clearly. But those, that's a conversation we have quite easily and um, frequently around the organisation. If you ask someone who works in Bupa one thing about Bupa, they go to purpose. And I think that's, that's something that's always struck me as, you know, quite remarkable it's not a it's not a, a logo it's something which is quite deep and intrinsic to us so you know clearly we strive to live that every day and it connects our eighty-five thousand people worldwide across multiple countries and cultures and types of work so um uh what are we doing about that so one thing we're just rolling out is a significantly enhanced improved set of healthcare support for our people so that everybody and that's 85,000 people worldwide will have an enhanced healthcare support package now how we do that varies by country and to types of work you've got office based people you've got people in care homes and hospitals and dentists but we've significantly invested in that and that's not just healthcare support so people you know can tap into a greater range of the own products and services that we provide our customers and, and patients, but also it takes you into um, emotional support and well-being, financial well-being, and even um, taking us into how we engage with our with our communities and, and societies around things like environmental issues. So it's a quite a big, broad um, initiative, and we're rolling that out. And a lot of great work's gone into that, but there's also a significant amount of money behind it, so it will endure. So we've always as you'd expect, we're a healthcare company, we've always been able to provide healthcare support to our people in different ways. But as we've grown as an organisation, that's just been quite varied around the world. So we've now brought it together and improved it. And I think particularly, we're targeting those improvements on people who work on the front line. And the front line for us are people who are customer serving, customer facing. That can be people who work in a contact centre on for our insurance businesses um but also people who are working a, a carer um a dentist someone in working in a hospital etc so that's where we're really really focusing because you know those are incredibly challenging jobs and that's right so i think that goes back to purpose and i should say congratulations are in order for being ranked fifth in the inclusive top 50 employers maybe you could explain that a little bit Yes, so that's in, that's in our UK business, um, and I think the team there are rightly proud. I think they've done a lot of really good work around um, making Bupa a a very inclusive and great place to work. It's something that um, we're very proud of. I think if, if I give you an example of one of the ways we're doing that, um, you may have seen, but last year we uh, started a partnership with the British Paralympics Association, so the National Paralympics body and that's something we've been doing in other countries around the world um now there's a couple of different things 
as part of it. But one of the things we're most proud of is how that how we are going to learn from working with the, with the para the Paralympians and build greater awareness, understanding uh, of inclusivity and how to be an even more inclusive company. Uh, so there's a lot there that our people can get involved with, meet the Paralympians, work on projects, but equally learn, improve our practices. Um, and that's something we've been doing around the world. So we've been working in that way in our Spanish business for a number of years with great partnership there with their national Paralympics body. We have it in Chile and Poland. We did launch the UK last year. And then we're moving, we've just launched it in Australia. So that's sort of a focus on inclusivity. I think the thing that's really good there, and again, real and tangible about that is, it's not perhaps you might think of it in a, a typical corporate way. It might be like, oh, we're just putting some money into that. And that's just a you know transactional partnership. We provide healthcare. We provide healthcare support and services to the elite athletes, the elite Paralympians. And so it's very real. It's demonstrable. It's it's us putting our purpose into action. It is um, highly relevant to what we do as a company. So, um, and that could be, you know, say healthcare support, that can be physio services, it can be mental health, it can be a, a range of healthcare interventions, but that's what we give. It's not just, you know, a check. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm proud of that. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You should be. It's, it's great. Uh, so just uh, finally on employees before we, we move on, um, there's no escaping the topic of the cost of living crisis and the impact it's having on people's lives, particularly here in the, the UK. Is there anything that you're doing in particular to support yes, people? Yes, of course. Um, so there's a lot. And I think the key point, though, is we have put in a series of uh, cost of living, salary and, and, pack, and remuneration package uplifts that are particularly targeted on the front line. So go back to my comment just now around what's our front line. That can be, that is customer facing, customer serving, patient caring uh, colleagues. And so we, because we, we work across a breadth of businesses, a uniform approach rarely works. It's not fair or relevant necessarily. Um, so we, you know, we, we focus on what's right in the care home business in terms of improvements to salary, because that is a low pay and sector and very challenging. We focus on the dental business. And again, look at the market there, look at the dynamics in that in that industry. Similarly, in the hostels, similarly in the insurance contact center. So we take a targeted approach, but we have put it through a series of um, uplifts for salary, and salary to reflect the rising cost of living challenges. And that, again, we can do that. Um, we can do that for a number of reasons, because you know it's right. Um, it's the right thing to do. It's linked to our purpose and our values. It's also something that Boop can do, perhaps that other companies can't do as easily. You know, we do not have shareholders. We're not a listed company. We can make longer term decisions about how we reinvest the profit. And I think things like that are examples that um, of the difference that we can that we can make and that our slightly different structure can can help with that. So we can make sort of longer term decisions that are linked to part of our purpose. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned care homes there, uh, and it and it brought to mind obviously that the headlines we've seen recently, and I suppose everything that we've seen happening with the pandemic over the last few years. Um, also thinking about you know strikes in the NHS at the moment. Uh, so I wanted to touch on a report um, that we conducted earlier this year about trust and, and health. 
uh, and a finding in there that um, discovered that 55% of people worry that medical science and healthcare is becoming politicised or being used to support a specific political agenda. So question to you in, in two parts, I suppose, Rupert. Firstly, how much of a danger does healthcare being seen as political present? And also, how do we take steps to decouple healthcare from partisan politics? Yeah, this is a very complex and highly relevant um, area. Um, I think there's a few things. It's also not new. Actually, it's the first point I'd say. This, these dynamics, this, this you know, political debate is not new. And because uh, my role is global, I get to see and work with multiple healthcare systems. So I can see how these debates work uh, internationally. It is, generally speaking, more politicised, more acute a debate in the UK because of the nature of our system and how it's developed. I mean, it, it is, we are far more heavily weighted towards a public health system than many other countries. That's just a, a, you know, a fact in terms of expenditure. I think it is a danger because um, it can get in the way of really important and much needed conversations about collaboration and um, improving access to healthcare for people. Whether it's public or private, it's about ensuring that people can get the best healthcare that's possible, um, that's deliverable, and it's also accessible, that they can get it when they need it. So if you take the politics away from it, um, if you think about the healthcare system, then as, you know, as much collaboration and joint working uh, and honesty about and transparency about roles and competences, that's a good thing. And then you know, the, the funding, the division of who does what, the, the accountability for it can then be, can then be worked out afterwards. I think um, you know, that, that's an easy thing to say. Uh, you know, to ideology, politics can get in the way of it. And I understand, you know, it's understandable why. We have a taxpayer-funded system in the UK uh, with private being a much smaller part of that. But if you sort of look at what's needed to improve healthcare for the country, then I think clarity of roles, collaboration, openness around um, what organisations are trying to do and what they can't do. And I think I would say that the private public debate can sometimes be characterised by misperceptions. Often one might get a, uh, something put to you saying, well, you're, of course you're trying to do that as a private healthcare company. And more often we're saying, well, no, that's not an area of healthcare that we do. That's not, the NHS is a huge system um, that is broad in its in its service um, provision. In this country, private healthcare does certain things, and, and you know that, that that range might vary, but it's not um, it's not binary as I think often these debates get reduced to. Um, it's working alongside, working in partnership, and the final point I make is we're seeing, everyone's seeing, the NHS is seeing, simply put, rising demand for healthcare people have more healthcare needs. There is also obviously the legacy of what's come out, us coming out of COVID in terms of backlogs. But actually one thing we, we see coming out of COVID, people are focused more on their healthcare than ever before. And therefore their expectations have changed. And therefore the healthcare system, and I mean, take public and private out of that, just the healthcare system as a country, um, has to meet 
changing and rising demand full stop. Um, and that's a challenge for us all. Mm. So you've got to meet the demand. Um, also, you have to restore the trust and build the confidence in the, in yes. the system. Yeah. So what's Booper's role in, in that? So one of the things that we've said about COVID was it's clearly a huge shock to the world. But it was also it was a really shock to I think healthcare systems. So the world wasn't ready for for COVID. People thought about pandemics before, but the, what I mean by that is that services were shut, services weren't open to people. Um, people couldn't access healthcare services in many ways um, outside of you know the system stepped up to to look after people with COVID. That was admirable. But take that away. Aside from that, people couldn't access um, healthcare in the normal course of events. So we've, you know, we're saying, you know, that that can't happen again. Um, and we're seeing, starting to see the healthcare consequences of that wash through in terms of backlogs, perhaps hidden conditions. People are now emerging from COVID, and p- things weren't diagnosed or picked up. So what does that mean to us and to the healthcare system? Well, what we saw during COVID was uh, we had to work out a way of meeting people's healthcare needs, despite the fact that in many places, you know, physical services were shut because of restrictions. So people couldn't get to see the GP. They couldn't go for that hospital appointment or that clinic appointment. They couldn't get um, the consultation. Um, and what that meant in practice was that we had to drastic, dramatic, dramatically, we had to dramatically um, scale up digital healthcare services. And what I mean by that is remote consultations via apps on phones that can take you into diagnosis, coaching, nav- um, explaining uh, healthcare conditions to people, provision of information, because historically healthcare has been quite conservative and slow in terms of t- to embrace technology like that. It, it, it was there before COVID, but what we've seen uh, in a number of our countries, not just the UK, is the demand for that and then our ability to provide those digital health services dramatically escalated during COVID. Clinicians also embraced it. So we got past perhaps what might have been some reticence around that. And then the numbers of of patients who access our digital health services has then remained at an incredibly high level, way above what it was before COVID. And so that's what we see as a way of continuing to to maintain and restore trust in healthcare by changing our services so that they are available for people when they need it in a way that perhaps parts of the healthcare system weren't during COVID. So, and that's what, that really goes to the heart of our, our, our new strategy around, you know, embracing digital healthcare in as many ways as possible. We have a uh, product called Bluer, which is a sort of a, a multifunctional app that you know, patients and customers can use to navigate the system, get coaching, get consultations. Um, it, it, you know, it can then lead into things like diagnostics. It's something we, we're building on around the world, but and we just introduced in the UK, actually. So what are you hearing from from customers about 
those sort of new new trends and the um and sort of being able to access healthcare. I, I just wondered if if people you know miss the face to face or or do we think you know get your crystal ball out, Rupert? Are these yeah, these yeah. trends all here to stay? <laughs> okay, Rachel. Um, <laughs> we think so. We think these trends are here to stay broadly. Um, but an important point I just want to make is this does not mean that a customer or patient cannot go to see a doctor face-to-face if they want to. That That's there. That remains out. That's, we're absolutely sure about that. But what it does mean is that people's time can be used more effectively, more efficiently. And that means that healthcare can fit better with people's day-to-day lives in a way that we've all got used to banking and dealing with our insurance and other parts of our life online. Healthcare perhaps was a bit behind all of that. Um, So it's become a bit more consumerized in a way, customer friendly. Um, But also uh, the use, the better use of technology can mean that healthcare workers, doctors, other clinicians can use their time better, more effectively. There are certain things that perhaps are quite routine that don't need a face-to-face visit. And clearly there are some things, some interventions, some consultations that do, but we see it as a better use of time. So absolutely, we do believe this is a trend that is here to stay and we are seeing demand for digital healthcare rise exponentially across all of the countries that we, we operate in worldwide. And so what we're trying to do is take the best services that we developed in this instance. We had a really good service called Bluer in Spain that worked really, really well and was a great resource to have during COVID that we've taken that as a model and we're applying that in all the countries that we work in uh, around the world uh, as a digital platform and saying, this is a great model, it works. Now, it might vary by country and exactly, you know, exactly how it how it um how it works but there's some key principles to, to that so yes we see that uh, being a lasting change fantastic uh, another finding from the special report that i mentioned that i found quite surprising um is around consumer healthcare information mm. uh, and the fact mm. that only four in ten of the uk population consume healthcare information uh, and to put that into context that's compared to over eight in ten in china uh, seven in ten in mexico and six in ten in south korea so I'm wondering, do we need to make health information more accessible for people here in the UK? Is it about accessibility or is it just about a mindset? What do you think is going on there? I, I think this is about trusted information. And we see ourselves as a brand with a great responsibility, but also we've had a great legacy in healthcare. Therefore, we you know, have a unique position of trust, I think, to, to, um, to, to, to work from. And so I think this does come down to availability of digital services again. And that's, again, a big focus area um, in some of the digital apps that I've talked about. I think people want information that they can trust. That's something we are working to provide more and more of. I think also one point that came out of COVID is people are more concerned about their health care. They're also more demanding about their health care. And they're also more demanding about their own personal healthcare. What I mean by that is this greater personalization. People want services, information that are specific and tailored to them. And technology and innovation and science 
is starting to help with all of that. And that's something you know, we and many other healthcare companies are embracing. So it's, it's less about a, a one size fits all approach to here's some information. And now, you know, people want to know about, okay, that bit doesn't quite apply to me. What about me? And I think that's, that's, that probably ties in my early point around the increased consumerization around healthcare. People want more personalized services full stop that fit with their lives and are relevant to them. So how do we do that? Um, that takes us back to, you know, how do we harness the information we have? We've got great clinical knowledge internally. You know, we've got a, you know, a lot of uh, insights, knowledge. We have a lot of data, as you'd expect. How do we utilize all of those things in a way that can mean that we can deliver the best, most accessible and most personalized healthcare information and guidance uh, to to our customers. And we're putting that through some of the digital platforms that I've, I've talked about already. So you'd, you'd hope, uh, I guess, that in a year or two's time, that four in 10 figure would would rise to, to more. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, yeah, we started uh, introducing more digital products in the UK. We've already had them, but I think we've, we're enhancing them. And I think I would hope and expect that to come through, that data to improve in the UK, um, you know, next year. Yeah, fantastic. Um, moving on to another very topical subject, and that is um, the climate, uh, climate action and sustainability. Uh, we've just had COP twenty seven, um, or at the end of end of last year. So um, either a complete disaster or a total triumph depending on who you listen to but what do you think about the healthcare sector and its role and how it can lead on climate action and any great examples of, of work that you're doing at Bupa? So we're doing a lot and I think this is a big focus area for us so we finalised our sustainability strategy last year and set some ambitious goals and I can talk about those in a bit more detail. Um, it's a big area for us. I think the first point I'd say is that the healthcare sector as a whole, hasn't historically focused so much on this. Now, um, healthcare as a whole is actually quite a big emitter. If you put everything that, you know, the manufacturing of healthcare, equipment, appliances, pharmaceuticals, hospitals are you know, quite carbon intensive. Um, they put other, you know, healthcare facilities in that. It's quite a, as a sector, it's quite carbon intensive. And that's something that hasn't really been talked about. Because actually what we do is a social good. Um, but what we're doing now is bringing together partners. And I think partners is a key point about this. So Bupa on its own cannot drive um, progress in this area without bringing along partners. And so we've set up a, a series of coalitions and partnerships with other big healthcare players worldwide to examine the uh, role of um climate change and human health and there are many connections between the two to build awareness of the fact that a poor planet a poor planet health can be can also lead to poor human health that could be things like respiratory could become things like um pollution other you know other aspects of, of healthcare can be worsened by poor planetary health so there's a kind of awareness research evidence point that we're, we're collaborating with others on there's then a piece that um we obviously as a healthcare sector need to uh, focus on our emissions. Now, Bupa, because we don't manufacture anything, and we don't, we're not a, we're not necessarily a big emitter ourselves. However, 
we manage a huge supply chain and value chain. So if you take our insurance businesses, which are the biggest part of Uber, now those on their own, our direct emissions are, are small, but we are contracting with hospitals across the world and um, other you know, healthcare appliance manufacturers, other suppliers. So we need, we need to work through our supply chain to ensure that the healthcare supply chain is delivering healthcare in a more environmentally sustainable way. So we set targets, which are our own targets, but some of those parts of those targets are, well, critically dependent on the work of others and collaboration and us galvanizing the healthcare system together. So that's a big uh, area of focus. And we're at the start of that, let's be honest, and it's complex. Um, other areas that we're focusing on are um, looking at innovation. So how can healthcare be delivered in a way that is uh, still uh, better for human health, but is environmentally efficient. So we've launched a program last year, and we've repeated it again, of collaboration with startups in the, that work in the eco, the eco space, but also have a healthcare impact. So that can be uh, like working with uh, organizations that recycle things like PPE uh, and turn it back into healthcare uniforms. There's a great um, company that we work with in Spain called Circular, um, who won our first round of, um, uh, of this program last year. And what they do is amazing. It's taking a you know healthcare products, uh, but reusing them so they can be continued to, to serve healthcare. And so that turns up in things like scrubs, gowns, those sorts of medical equipment. So we're putting a lot of effort and our teams are putting a lot of effort and collaboration into those sorts of projects. So I think you put that all together, the healthcare system as a whole hasn't really been as uh, focused on the environmental piece until now. So you, you mentioned COP. Um, we and our partners participated in conversations around COP to drive awareness and collaboration around exactly all the things I've just described. So come together with other big pharma, big health manufacturers, other big consumer healthcare organizations to say, how can we as a, as a industry be better? We continue to serve our purpose of helping improve human health, but how do we drive improvements in planet health? And as a big collaboration exercise, and some of that will take us into working with NGO partners, um, and some of it will take us into working with government. So that's a big area of focus that I'd say we've been accelerating dramatically in the past you know, 15 months or so. And yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, it's time for the talk to turn to to action there, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and on that point, um, you know, we put targets which we are absolutely committed to. They are very ambitious targets. And we are putting the organisational resources and the money and ch fundamentally changing parts of how the organisation does its business and operations to deliver those things. It's not going to be easy. We can't do it on our own, but... It takes collaboration. So, yeah, to your point around words and actions, we're, we're very conscious of that and very, I think, humble and transparent about that. Okay, um, just briefly to finish, um, 
I'd love to hear your thoughts, Rupert. You've shared some great insights um, about what Bupa is, is doing. But outside of Bupa, who is doing a great job right now, whether it's a business or a, an individual, when it comes to winning the trust of their, their key audiences? I think this goes back to COVID. But I think one of the things that COVID led to was a reappraisal of the role that pharmaceutical companies can can play. Now, many, I've worked with pharma, so I have to be very careful about what I say. And I have many friends who work in pharma. And um, I think historically, among many stakeholder groups and audiences, you know, pharmaceutical had a, you know, it parts a poor reputation because of th you know, things from the past and certain uh, things that have gone badly wrong or choices that are being made and i think what the pharmaceutical sector was able to do because of the science and the innovation was um do something incredible around creating vaccines at scale that appear to have been effective and i think that has led to i think a significant reappraisal of how people see that sector now um, I'm not going to name names around companies, but there are you know many big companies that kind of did amazing things very quickly, and many people, amazing amazing scientists. So I think that's a that's a sector that's going to you know I'm familiar with and know well. But I've definitely seen a a reappraisal of reputation there because quite simply, what they were able to deliver through their core competence was done so well, and. Uh, so quickly and had such important uh, human value. So I think that goes back to you know, fundamentally, I think trust is driven by your actions. Interesting. So much more I would love to ask about that, but sadly we're out of time. So it just remains for me to say thank you for your time, Rupert. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you and hear about Boop and what you're doing and, and hear about your career and, and um, your focus on, on trust. So thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel. I've, I've loved it.